If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. We'll be reading that. That's in your pew Bible, page 895. And as you turn, let me just tell you a bit about the person that stands before you. My name is Knox Baird. I'm the assistant pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, as John has already shared with you. Uh, I was a part of a group of uh, men and women that uh, came down here, I guess, about uh, uh, right after Katrina when uh, Guy Richard uh, was uh, put into the pulpit at First Pres Gulfport, but because they didn't have a church, we had it here. I don't know if any of you were a part of that uh, uh, service, but uh, we came down and the women in our church uh, uh, served the meal outside with the we had the lights in here during the service and then when it got dark we took the lights outside so this has really been the last time since uh, i've been down here to gulfport Uh, i will be back with you in two weeks god willing uh and if you want me to come back uh, i pray that you will and it is a privilege to to stand before you uh let's uh go to john chapter 9 and i'm going to read uh the first 11 verses uh, of John 9. And it, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash So I went and washed and received my sight. Thus the reading of God's word, it is infallible and errant. Let's have a short prayer again. Father, we've prayed in the past for our forgiveness and, Father, for invocation. And, Father, we've also just prayed for the church. Now we pray, Father, for the preaching of your word. We know that the person that stands in this pulpit is deeply flawed as a sinner. Pray that the words uh, from my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and that your people would hear the word of God as you bring it because it is true. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I would like to flip over and read another verse. This is from John chapter 20 and verse 30. And listen to what John says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the book of John. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're full of a lot of miracles. And sometimes we, we read these miracles and we say, well, that's, that's pretty that's pretty." Great that Jesus would walk on water, that he would turn water into wine, he would heal blind people. Uh, he, he did a lot of things. But I want you to realize as we talk, as you listen, as I preach about the sixth miracle of John today, John reco- or Jesus, excuse me, Jesus uh, does seven miracles that John records. He actually does a whole lot more than that. But John records just seven miracles. And he says in verse 30 of the 21st chapter, or the 20th chapter, he says, I'm writing this for a purpose. There's a reason. Uh, I recorded this so that people that would read the book of John and would contemplate the miracles that I'm talking about would believe in Jesus Christ. And so I would ask that you would keep that in your mind as we, as we go through this scripture. Uh, in 1963, there was a guy named Brian Sternberg. And Brian was the world holder in pole vault. He was an American. Nowadays, very few Americans seem to be uh, the world holders in pole vault. But back then, he was the number one pole vaulter in the world and he was getting ready to go to uh, a meet between the United States and the Soviet Union which would then lead into the Olympics where he was expected to win the gold medal and as he was training he uh, had a freak accident on the trampoline and broke his neck and he became a uh, quadriplegic. A couple of years ago in in our church there were a number of girls that played on the soccer team. And one of their friends who didn't happen to go to our church was going to Dallas with her mom and sister. And in a freak accident, the car they were driving in turned over and uh, this girl was thrown out and and she died. She was 13 years old. Uh, I want to tell you that in each pew here, I know that there are people that are hurting because up on the pulpit, back in the choir, there are people that are hurting. Uh, We are hurting people primarily because we live in a hurting world filled with sin. I don't know about your church, but right now uh, in our church, we have two people that are under the age of 60 that have cancer that have basically been given a death sentence. we are praying for them. We are fasting for them. And I want to tell you, we are hurting with them and for them. These are people that are heavily involved in our church. So uh, this church, and I know you, you are hurting as a church, but I want you to know that you're not the only church that's hurting. And there are churches all throughout this world and people all throughout this world that are hurting, that are suffering. Uh, if you've looked at my sermon, I say, Why? I couldn't think of a better title, so I just said, why? And that is the question that is asked uh, in the passage as we, we look at it. 
uh, why is there suffering? And then what is our response to suffering? Either you're suffering or you're around somebody who's suffering. And what's going on? What does God have to say? Um, this passage doesn't give us the definitive answer, but it kind of gives us the big picture. Of course, listen, if we get right down to it, why do we suffer? That's Adam and Eve's issue. Adam sinned. Romans says, through one man sin entered into the world and death follows. And so we suffer because Adam and Eve both sinned. Everyone is handicapped by sin. Okay? Everybody. Of course, the issue comes, is, is our suffering the result of things that we've done? Uh, not all of sin and suffering come because of what maybe we have done and we're being punished. If you know anything about the book of Job, you know that, that Job suffers. And guess what? We're never told why God allows Job to suffer. We're just not told. We're told what happens. And we're told the right things that people do and the wrong things people do. But we're not told why. We look at Joseph and we see that Joseph, when he is sold into slavery and his brothers finally realize who he is and their father dies and they come before him saying, we're in trouble now. He's second in command and he can kill us. And Job says, look, I'm not God. And for whatever reason, we read this in Job 50, God put me in this place for the saving of many people. I'll give you a little background of what we read in John 9. In John 7, we are introduced into the Feast of Booths. And it's going on in Jerusalem. It's the longest feast or festival. It lasts seven days. And it celebrates God's gracious provision to the Israelites as they traveled out of Egypt into the deserts. He took care of them. And in that feast, there are two things that, that go on. There is the water ceremony. And uh, it is remembering the water that God supplied, graciously supplied to the children of Israel as they wandered in the desert. And then there's also the lighting ceremony that remembered that the pillar of fire that guided the people. And Jesus stands up in the temple and midst of people and says two things. I am the light of the world. And I am the living water. And he connects the ceremony that is to both with the water and the light, which is to praise God. He says, look, I am God. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. And you need to worship me. You need to come to me because I am the Messiah. And the response by the Jewish leaders is he says this in John 8, 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. Clearly they understand what he's saying. They take up stones and they're going to kill him in the temple. This would be like in church right now. They're looking for rocks and they're going to kill Jesus. And it says that Jesus slips through them and leaves. And that brings us to chapter 9 and in the King James, if you have the King James, it starts off with the word and. In the ESV, it starts off with the word as. Whatever, it's a linking word. It links what's happened in 7 and 8, chapter 7 and 8 to 9. We see that as Jesus is walking out, 
And by the way, the disciples are with him. And uh, if, if you were somebody who's just been threatened, they're going to kill him. They're kind of thinking, you know what? If they stone Jesus, they may stone us as well. So they're kind of fleeing with Jesus. And their thoughts are, let's get out of here. We don't want to die right now. And as Jesus is leaving, he sees this blind man. By the way, because he is blind and been born blind since birth, he can never go into the temple. He is unclean. And one of the reasons why Jesus healed so many blind people, if you look throughout the Gospels, he healed more blind people than any other kind of affliction, was because of Isaiah. And Isaiah in chapter 65 would say in other places that the Messiah is going to heal the blind. And the blind, anytime you read, by the way, in the Gospels about a blind person being healed, really what Jesus is making a comment on is that there's spiritual blindness as well as physical blindness. And if you read the rest of chapter 9, you're going to see that this man is healed spiritually as well as he's healed physically. But anytime you read about blindness... Think about spiritual blindness and about unbelief. And we see that Jesus seeks out this man. And Jesus says to this man that I'm going to heal you. By the way, uh, this man is just sitting there. He doesn't do anything to attract Jesus. He hey, Jesus, I'm blind. Come heal me. He's sitting there begging. Jesus comes to him. And we see that as Jesus comes to him. By the way, Jesus always comes to us. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, it's again, as I pray, it's not because you're so good or so great that God just has to have you in heaven. He came to you while you were spiritually blind on the outside of the church, in a sense, and brings you to himself and heals you. And because of that, we're grateful. And in our response to our confession that we had few minutes ago is obedience and faith because we love our Lord and Savior because we realize you know there's nothing in of myself that saves me but only through Jesus Christ and because of that how much I've been saved I want to love you Lord I want to follow after you in verse 2 we see that uh, the disciples stop and they say by the way the, the Greek kind of points out that Jesus makes a point of noticing this man. It's not as they're running by, they, oh yeah, look at this guy. Jesus points out this man, so the disciples kind of cue in, and for whatever reason, they know the background of this man, that he's been born blind. And this is the only time that we see Jesus healing somebody, a blind person that was born blind. And they go to the question of why. And it says, did this man sin that he was born blind in his mother's womb? Or did the parents sin? And he is bearing their guilt. And he's being punished because of what the parents did. Because that's what the Pharisees taught. Okay? That you suffered, it's your fault. If you're suffering, it's your issue. Sometimes it is. And just because we're saved as Christians and we sin does not mean there's not going to be cause and effect. Young people, if you, if you do something, if you sin and you're a Christian, 
Was that going to keep you out of heaven? No. Your sins are forgiven. Old people, not just young people, old people. Will our sins keep us out of heaven? No. If you're a Christian, they have been paid for on the cross. But there could be an effect. And so, this is what the Jews, all, the Jewish leaders taught. They said somebody sinned and God's dealing harshly but justly with that. He doesn't give an answer. Jesus doesn't. He says, neither one is right. The man didn't sin in the womb and the parents didn't sin. Can I give you a word of encouragement when you deal with people that are suffering? Don't give easy answers. Don't give a pat answer. I think if, if there's somebody suffering in this church, horribly suffering, I think the Bible does give some answers, but it's not going to be in a five-minute response. It's not going to be a Romans 8.28. It's going to be a process of walking with them and sharing with them and loving with them. But Jesus doesn't give a pat answer. And by the way, God never gave an easy answer to Job as well. I just hope that encourages all. One of the things that we do see in the book of Job, his friends came and sat with him for seven days. They don't say a word. They were with him. That's probably one of the best things you can ever do with somebody who is suffering. Just go sit with them and be with them. You know, we're all like this blind man. And we're suffering. And we don't know what to do. But God does. And he sends us the light of the world. There's a response to suffering. We see that Jesus says it in verse 4 after he says, It's not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's something going on that, that nobody knew about. He's saying that, that God, God's going to do something in this man's life. And let me encourage again anybody that's suffering here. I don't know. What's happening in your life? But if you're a Christian, God's going to use your suffering. And there's going to be some work that comes out of that that's going to bring glory to His name as we respond in the proper way. The improper way to look at suffering is this. The disciples just enter into a theological debate. It's easy to throw words at suffering. That's why I say don't give pat answers. And so they're just talking... You know, theological issues or to debate. The, the parents, is, we're not going to read this, but in verses 19 through 23, when they're put on the carpet, and they say, who, who healed this man? They say, we don't know. Ask him. Because they were afraid. They knew that Jesus had healed their son, but they didn't want to get thrown out of the temple. So they said, we, we're not going to answer. Sometimes we don't do anything. We may have a friend that's suffering and we just, say, we just don't know what to do. We're scared to do anything, so we don't do a thing. The crowd is pretty much indifferent. In verse 10, that, this is a guy who, who knows how many years has been out by the temple gate begging, and they don't even know he's been healed. They're not even sure that this is the same guy. They're just indifferent. They don't care. There's no celebration of the healing. They say, hey, are you the guy? Now you look like him, but they're not sure. They're pretty indifferent. We can be the same way. We can just be flat out indifferent of somebody that's suffering in our midst. And then the Pharisees, man, they're just mean. They say, you deserved it. 
And that's the response that the disciples first give. That's the meanness of the Pharisees saying, when you got something suffering going on, you deserve it. And so because you deserve it, we're not going to help you. Let's not be mean. Jesus says that suffering can be corrective or directive. If we are suffering, and if you look at your life and say, you know, there's some sin in my life that's causing some of my suffering. We, we know that from God's Word, from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's really, Jesus is the Word. He wants to correct us. And sometimes our suffering is to correct us, to get us back on the right path, get us back in this right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's always proper to look at our lives and to see what's happening and say, Lord, is this something that you've allowed that is to correct me, is to bring me back into a proper relationship? I was reading this week about a man who started a very successful film company a Christian company, and it went bankrupt, and he's starting another one. And he was just talking about how things got out of whack and how he, he lost it all, lost all his money, lost everything. And he's going back again, but he kept saying, no, I've been corrected. I saw where I went astray a bit. Sometimes, though, suffering can be directive, that God uses this to direct us, direct us to him. First, First Peter 4.13 says this, that we participate in the sufferings of Jesus and that when that suffering is revealed, he's going to be glorified. First Peter 1.7 says this, that our faith is proved genuine, results in praise and glorified and honor when Jesus is revealed. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I when I get a product that says, if you will just do this, whatever it is, then it'll work. And you have a product, you have something, and you're waiting for the opportunity that you get to use it to find out if it really does work, whether it's to fix your flat tire or your oven or to make you taller or grow hair or make your teeth white. You know, you're saying, is this thing going to really work? And... First Peter says, your faith, when you suffer, it provides you an opportunity to know it is real. Your faith is real. Jesus does love you. Jesus is with you. It may not make everything simple and right, but it's going to prove that your faith in Christ will stand the test of suffering. Notice what... Jesus then says, after he says that God's work might be displayed in him, it says, we must, in verse 4, work the works of him who sent us. If you have the King James, the King James says, I must work. I believe and I like the ESV better when it says, we must do the works. Guess what? We're the we. We're the we. Okay, it's not just Jesus and the twelve disciples. It's the church. If you are a Christian today and you see suffering around you, there is something that you need to think about. If you're not a Christian, you're off the hook, by the way. 
If you're here today and you say, I'm not a Christian, I don't love Jesus Christ, then you don't have to listen to me right now. But if you are a Christian, there's a framework for ministry and suffering. Number one, it says we're, it's necessary to have deeds accompany the Word of God. You know, it's not just enough. We hear it in James where it says, hey, go and be fed. You need to put your faith into action. Okay? That's because God calls us to. That we are to have some kind of deeds that accompany our faith. Guess what? God doesn't need your good works, but our neighbors do. Our neighbors need our good works because we're called to live out Jesus Christ. Guess what? Work takes effort. Anybody here that's in school, if you've got a test coming up this week, you know, it's going to take a little work to make a hundred. Or if you've got a job or you have a project, if you want to be the best you can be, it's going to take a little effort. Also, it's going to take some obedience because, let's face it, we see some suffering and we say, I don't want to get involved. But God says, get involved. He then says something that says, I am the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, I'm going to do these good works. But night is coming. We only have a limited time to do this work. And that's why you're alive. Or while the opportunity presents itself. There's going to come a time when somebody's suffering that's going to need Christians to step up and to minister to them. And... It's not always going to be there. It's not always going to be there. It's a limited time. You're not always going to be here. You're going to die one day or Christ is going to come back. But we are called by Jesus in this passage to participate in good works to help people that are suffering. The last two things I'd say, use your gifts and temperament. If somebody's car is broken down as we go out and you look at me to help you to fix your car, that's not going to work. That's not my temperament. That's not my gifts. Okay? Hopefully there's somebody here that can use those gifts that God has given you. I have other gifts. But fixing cars isn't one of them. You have gifts and ability. Use your gifts and ability in the context of suffering. Be open to the, God's leadership from the church and also from the Holy Spirit. Say, pray, God, I want to help. I don't know what to do. Guide me. Help me. I want to close uh, with this. Uh, for those that are suffering, I, I wrote down the, the works or some things that uh, we might could apply to our lives. Uh, number one is um, if you're suffering... What's God doing in your life right now? He might be saying, I want my attributes to be seen in your suffering. I want my grace and mercy to, to be seen in your life. And God's grace and mercy will be seen as you respond in obedience and faith. Notice what the man does when, God, when Jesus spits and puts clay on his eyes. He doesn't say, hey, I thought you were going to send me to the hospital or you were going to say something. Or what does he do? He goes. He goes and he washes. He's obedient to God's Word. Whatever your situation, if you're suffering, 
Please go to God's word and say, God, show me. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond? Number two says that uh, God is going to reveal himself to others in your suffering. Uh, the two people, two people in our church right now that are really suffering with cancer, both of them, or all three of them, I've heard all three of them say this, that God, I want, I want you to be glorified. I want other people to see that you are living and powerful. I want your name to be glorified. In your suffering, let God's grace and mercy be seen. Also, don't come to the point where you say, God, I need to understand everything about my suffering. God may let you, but He may not. As Jesus says, He doesn't say the reason. He just says, God is going to do some work in your life. Be prepared. God is preparing you for work to come. Maybe it's on this world, it's in the next. Pastor Norman Bagby, Andy's dead. I hear him often praying for people that are sick, for healing. He calls it complete healing. Sometimes our suffering is going to be completely done away with when we get to heaven. And lastly, just as the suffering man, uh, he put himself in a position to Jesus to see him to come by. And God's going to come by and find us wherever we are. But if you are suffering, one of the things I can encourage you is put, you, put yourself in a position for God to come by. And that would be easy things. I'm not going to give you any life-altering. You know, read your Bible, first of all. Go to God's Word and say, God, I'm hurting, I'm suffering. Speak to me in your Word. Pray to God. Communicate. God doesn't need our prayers, but He does respond to them. Number three, be around God's people. How often do you see people that are suffering? They say, I'm going to stay away from the church. I'm going to stay away from the Bible studies. I'm going to stay away from Wednesday night. Put yourself in a position with other God's people. Spiritual blindness is worse than physical blindness. If you're suffering here and you're a Christian, I can tell you this, that one day that suffering is going to go away. If you're suffering here and you're a non-Christian, that is happening to you, I want to say that's the best part of your life is that you're suffering here. Because when you die, if you don't go to heaven, it's going to be a lot worse. For Christians, the worst that we'll get is right here on this earth. That's our suffering. The worst. If you're a non-Christian, the best you will have is the suffering here. I would ask and beg that if you don't know Christ, if you say, look, I'm a lot like this blind man sitting over here. I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. Then you talk to an elder or deacon or to Andy afterwards. You find me. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that we do count our blessings. and We name them one by one. We look at all the things that you have done. Father, we thank you that in your goodness and mercy, you call us to participate in helping the suffering people in your ministry. And so, Father, now as we come and 
we give of our tithes and our offerings, we pray that we would see that as we give, not only is it an act of worship, is an act that we participate in helping people that need help. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.